Welcome to Friends Who Argue, a podcast from the Advocate Society. Each episode will bring you conversations with advocates across all areas of litigation who share their stories, insights, tips, and tricks from their journeys as advocates. We hope you'll find this podcast informative, inspiring, and most of all, entertaining, and that you'll subscribe to our podcast on iTunes to stay up to date on the latest episodes. Today on Friends Who Argue, we welcome back civil litigator Natalia Rodriguez, who continues her conversation with Joshua Seeley Harrington, researcher, teacher, and advocate. As the second part of a two-part series being released in honor of Black History Month, Natalia and Joshua discuss systemic racism and critical race theory in the context of modern jurisprudence. And welcome back to Friends Who Argue. This is episode two of a two-part series on um, systemic racism in uh, historical jurisprudence. And we've been talking to Joshua Seeley Harrington um, about critical race theory and systemic racism in in historical jurisprudence. And today we're gonna continue the conversation speaking about systemic racism in current jurisprudence and how uh, it, uh, it manifests itself today. Thanks again for being with us, Joshua. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. So in our earlier episode, we were discussing um, how critical race theory applies to to our legal structures and to to society in general. We looked at some examples of historical racism uh, in the jurisprudence, and um, we're going to speak a little bit about how how that systemic racism is evident in in current jurisprudence and in, uh, in current day society. Yeah, so I'm I'm working on a research project right now, actually exploring systemic racism in the Canadian Charter, uh, and there's lots of examples, uh, some of which I discussed previously uh, on episode one, but I'll focus on a couple here. Uh, but before I do that, it's critical to refresh on on what I mean by systemic racism before we we dive into it specifically. Uh, so some people use systemic racism to refer to uh, what you could potentially call widespread racism. Um, But typically, and certainly in critical race theory, um, systemic racism refers to the disparate racial effects of otherwise neutral policies. Um, And whether or not a policy itself qualifies as genuinely neutral is a complicated political question. I acknowledge that. Uh, But in general, if we're concerned with systemic racism, we need to be thinking about the racial effects of our laws, regardless of their intent. That's a really important qualifier because a lot of people limit their imagination in relation to racism to kind of intentional uh, things, which really limits the scope of what you can deal with through a racial justice lens. Although Um, section 15 of the charter, which we talked about in the first episode, specifically talks about the effects of, uh, of the legislation and not the intent. Right. Yes. So is that trying to capture, is that trying to, uh, to in, embed some of these concepts a little bit in, into that section? Yeah, I, I would say that if you, you, for example, compare Section 15 of the Canadian Charter to the Equal Protection Clause in the United States, it has broader phrasing, uh, which I would say very, say very strongly supports the argument, even a conservative textual argument, that the vision of equality uh, created by Section 15 is much broader. Um, I would also say just like normatively, we need a broader vision of equality than in the United States because their, their Section 15 jurisprudence is uh, 
perniciously narrow. Um, but yeah, the language of Section 15, and in particular 15.2, which permits affirmative action, right? The, the constitutionality of affirmative action is constantly lit litigated in the United States. And right in our charter, it says that affirmative action is, is fine. Um, so that doesn't mean we do enough affirmative action or there aren't many other ways of attacking equality programs uh, through legal argument. Um, but at a, as a starting point, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's lots of, uh, I think, helpful language in Section 15 of the charter relating to equality rights advocacy. Um, but yeah, with the definition of systemic racism out of the way, uh, there's some uh, recent Supreme Court decisions that we can look through at through a lens of critical race theory and systemic racism. Uh, so one case is Coconese from 2015, uh, which concerned charter rights pertaining to representative jury roles. Um, and the majority of the court, which upheld the constitutionality of the jury role in that case, interpreted these rights, I would say, very narrowly. Uh, specifically, what was held to be a constitutionally adequate selection process left Mr. Kokmanes with a jury that had 0% on reserve representation, despite 21 to 32% of the adult population in his district living on reserve. Um, so how did this happen? Uh, I would say it's because the court was unwilling to grapple with the ways in which systemic racism is institutionalized through government processes. So the majority rejected a results-based test for jury representation. Uh, and in their view, it would spell the end of the jury system as we presently know it if we adopted such a test, uh, which I find an ironic statement because hastening that end is precisely why we need a results-based approach. Uh, because Canada has for far too long had disproportionately white juries which compromised the impartiality of Canadian juries, especially for Black and Indigenous accused. Uh, the majority writes that the state should do as much as it can to overcome systemic issues, yet designs a test that places literally zero scrutiny on the outcomes of the state's efforts and instead solely considers the processes that the state elects to follow and whether those processes amount to reasonable efforts. And let's be clear, the state's efforts are, as it stands, totally inadequate. It bans people with criminal records from serving on juries, despite the obviously disproportionate racial effect that that has. It does not permit permanent residents to serve on juries, again, despite obviously disproportionate racial effects. Most importantly, neither the federal or provincial governments reasonably compensate jurors for their time, which, of course, selects for particular social groups. Uh, for example, a 2018 report to the Canadian Judicial Council on Jury Selection in Ontario found that the system favors, quote, white, higher income earners, property owners, reporting English as their mother tongue. And I would say, based on the definition of systemic racism previously described, this system is systemically racist. And this systemic racism was, by the Supreme Court, immunized from constitutional review. A jury role could be 100% white. Uh, and that would actually be constitutionally irrelevant to whether or not that jury was representative, which I think is simply a contradiction in terms. Right. Um, so they're saying as long as the process that was followed uh, was reasonable and they made reasonable efforts, the outcome, whether it is 100 percent white, um, doesn't matter. Yeah, there's two things. One, they said it's all about the process. But two, right. When they say reasonable efforts, this is in a context where, for example, jurors are not reasonably compensated. So it's not only that they limited it to the process, but they viewed the process so narrowly, right? If right. I were a judge, I would say it is an unreasonable effort to not pay people to be on juries. Obviously, then, poor, lower-income people who are disproportionately racialized cannot be on juries. <laughs> they won't be able to afford it. They cannot set aside the time or, have, or lack the financial resources. So... Right. 
So, so did even the court if you, go as yeah. far? Sorry, did the court go as far as to say that the um, that those uh, that process was was adequate and it was um, it was a it was that was considered reasonable efforts? Like they they basically uh, gave a, a thumbs up to the uh, to the current system. Yeah, the the system that was under scrutiny in Cocopanes was upheld, um, and that system I would say has many unreasonable, you know, policy positions in relation to systemic racism. There's just essentially a series of decisions you can look at from provincial and federal governments in relation to how they compile jury rules um, and how they select juries that very predictably and foreseeably result in disproportionately white juries. Uh, And the court not only said we can ignore the outcome, but said these processes are reasonable as is. Uh, And I think that in many ways immunized a lot of the currently inadequate systems that we have in relation to jury diversity. Yeah, it's interesting that they would say that the outcome is not important when, you know, uh, something like Section 15, which addresses um, racial inequality in legislation, specifically says that, you know, the effects are what's important, what you have to look at. And so it would seem to me that this process is showing an effect which uh, is disproportionately excluding racialized individuals from serving on juries. Yet the court is saying that 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 the outcome doesn't matter. It's the process when when actually it, that runs contrary to the language of Section 15, I, I would say. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> I think that it is I think it is absolutely the case that, you know, the logic brought to the court in this case was uh, ruthlessly formalistic. Um, which is antithetical to the long tradition of Section 15, at least stated jurisprudence in Canada. Uh, and I say stated because, you know, the, the very first Supreme Court decision on equality, Andrews, was clear that we need to be looking to effects when we conceptualize what inequality means, um, but has not followed through on that constitutional promise in relation to racial inequality. Um, because, like I said, there's been very few race inequality cases that the Supreme Court has confronted, uh, and even fewer that it has decided, I would say, in a progressive racial manner. <laughs> and right. so um, you're correct. I think, you know, if I were to, uh, if I were teaching a course on Section 15 of the Charter and talking about Coquipanese, I would say it's pretty hard to square their process-oriented reasoning with the effects-based jurisprudence under Section 15. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what they did. I think, I'm pretty sure in Cocopanes, there's like one paragraph in the majority that like summarily disposed of the Section 15 argument, um, wow. which is often, which is often how, often the court either gives, you know, short shrift to Section 15, or if it's a Section 15, Section 7 case, they'll say, uh, we'll decide under Section 7 because we don't want to go to Section 15. Um, there, there's scholarship literally, you know, by uh, scholars like Jeanette Watson-Hamilton and Jennifer Koshan that talks about, you know, the court's uh, distaste with talking about, with engaging with Section 15 uh, because it's a bit of a political um, quagmire, they think. Um, right. And I think that really limits its potential. I think Section 15 actually has, has a lot of really important work to do in Canadian society and that untapped potential is something we need to think about. Uh, right. And I mean, it's, it's what you talked about, the kind of erasing of race talk. It's almost an avoidance of that race talk, um, you know, by going oh, to yeah. different sections in order to avoid going to Section 15 and not having to deal with that, right? Exactly. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of rhetorical way that the court can avoid having to dive back into the pool and be like, okay, when are we actually going to pretend like Canada has a race inequality problem that there's a legal means to, to deal with? Um, 
And uh, I think that's going to be a big thing we have to, you know, reckon with going forward in our in our advocacy strategies and in in our scholarship. Absolutely. Um, so take us to a to a second example. Yeah. So uh, a second example, which is more cautiously optimistic, is uh, Fraser v. Canada from 2020, just from last year. Uh, so five years after Kokomanes and Fraser, a majority of the court adopted a broad and flexible approach that was, I would say, sensitive to systemic barriers in relation to um, social hierarchy in society. Uh, indeed, the majority outlines in detail how systemic discrimination should be analyzed by courts. Uh, and critically, the majority recognizes that systemic discrimination can be among the most powerful legal measures available to disadvantaged groups in society to, atter- to assert their claims to justice. So admittedly, this appeal was in the context of gender inequality. Um, it, it was specifically about the RCMP's systemically sexist pension scheme. Um, but the principles articulated by the court in Fraser apply with equal, or I'd say even greater force to systemic racial inequality in Canada. Uh, and that relates to those outrageous statistics that I talked about uh, in our first in our first interview. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic about Fraser. It lays out doctrine that I think could be, you know, instrumentalized towards racial progress. Um but uh, I, I'm cautious in that optimism because it was in the context of gender inequality uh, and it was in the context of, um, you know, this like kind of narrow pension scheme issue. It wasn't necessarily about, you know, positive obligations relating to public housing, relating to public education. Um, a lot of the complex vehicles for social inequality in Canada that we need to that we need to confront. So while Canada has a long past and present of racism and case law, this recent jurisprudence shows some promise with respect to future avenues for legal advocacy. Great. And uh, my understanding is that you're exploring some of those avenues as well in some research projects that you're working on. Yeah, no. So I have uh, I have an essay currently under peer review that was invited for submission to a special edition of the University of Alberta's Constitutional Forum, uh, which is going to be uh, dedicated to the Fraser decision that I was just describing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm working on another essay right now where that I'm currently drafting for an upcoming conference uh, and eventual book uh, that's being coordinated by Emmett McFarlane and Kate Puddister uh, on the 40th anniversary of the Canadian Charter. So I'm I'm essentially looking at different. Um, ways in which legal advocacy can be used to combat racial inequality. And the Fraser decision is uh, is a timely one because in many ways the doctrine calls for some pretty broad conceptualization of what we might call discrimination. Right. That's great. That's uh, excellent. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing all the that um, work product come out of you. Gonna be Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be, I got a, a lot of reading to do on critical race theory. Um, so last year, you talked a little bit uh, in our first episode, you were involved in a case at the Supreme Court of Canada, which dealt with systemic racism in the justice system. And actually, the podcast, our podcast friends who argue will be releasing a full episode that's going to be discussing this case in more detail. That's great. Uh, R.V. Chohan, right? Yeah. Which um, uh, the Advocate Society, we actually uh, intervened in it as well. Um, so tell us a bit about your role in this particular case and, and what it was about. First, what's the what was the uh, what was the case about, and and how were you involved? Yeah, so broadly speaking, Chohan was a constitutional appeal concerning peremptory challenges, uh, which were a device that let Crown and Defense Counsel remove prospective jurors from the trial jury without an identified justification to the court. Right. Um, and so, Canada abolished peremptory challenges in the wake of Gerald Stanley's acquittal for killing Colton Bushy. 
um, where Stanley's defense counsel used peremptory challenges to remove every visibly indigenous juror from the trial jury. I'm surprised to learn that, but uh, but it sounds like a good thing, especially when defense counsel is using these challenges to remove every single indigenous juror from a jury trial. That doesn't sound like a proper use of a preemptory challenge. Yeah. So so and I, I'm I I agree with you. Um, uh, but my, my client, the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, argued the opposite position. So they uh, argued that the abolition infringed the right to an impartial tribunal under Section 11D of the Charter. Uh, but that wasn't because they, uh, you know, supported what was termed the discriminatory use of peremptory challenges. Um, but rather because in their view, more often than not, peremptory challenges are used to increase rather than decrease diversity on juries. Uh, okay. so, one of, so one of the key arguments that the BCCLA advanced um, was essentially a, a concession to Indigenous groups that were intervening, uh, raising the concern of the removal of Indigenous jurors, uh, often by white male accused. Um, we don't think that that's good. But the reason why we don't think that's good is because of the systemic lens that the BCCLA brought to the intervention. Uh, right, the mm -hmm. use of peremptory challenges to decrease diversity on juries is a harm of their use, and the use by black accused, for example, to strike white jurors in the hope that that juror will be replaced by a racialized individual, viewed systemically, that's a that's a beneficial use of peremptory challenges. So the case was complicated because. Uh, depending on the accused and depending on the counsel and depending on the context, peremptory challenges could increase or decrease diversity on different juries. Uh, and so different constituencies came at it through through different angles. Uh, but absolutely, the, 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 you know, the prompt for the abolition related to, uh, you know, a, a horrible trial relating to, to Gerald Stanley um, and to a use of peremptory challenges that the BCCLA uh, didn't countenance whatsoever. It, it was more an issue of, you know, how are these used uh, generally and what's the net effect of abolition? Um, and right. one, of the, one of the key things that the BCCLA brought up was that, um, like I said before, you know, we have, we have chronically um, unrepresentative juries uh, and the Canadian government by removing peremptory challenges was kind of washing its hands of having dealt with the issue. Uh, when in reality, you know, this bill did not bring in reasonable compensation for jurors. This bill did not remove the striking of jurors with criminal records. This bill did not do many of the positive things the government could do to create representative juries. Rather, it did one of the things that wouldn't require any investment from the government uh, or any cost or resources from the government. Right. Um, and so, A little bit like how what we talked about in the first episode, uh, you know, these incremental changes that don't really do anything like body cams or whatever for police officers, instead of revamping the entire system, it's more of a, just a band-aid solution. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't go quite that far. I think that the right indigenous groups that were arguing, you know, in favor or in support of abolition are, are right that it's abolition will do something. And, and, and part of what it will do was what the BCCLA was resisting. So it's not that the, policy was entirely immaterial, you know, for, for indigenous, you know, victims in the criminal justice system, the ability for people to remove all of the visibly indigenous jurors has been removed. Uh, and that, you know, that isolated manifestation of the abolition, I'd say is positive and is material and was important to indigenous groups. And I understand that. Um, but it is the case, right, that um, though it will have an impact that the structural effect in relation to how juries are compiled 
was largely undisturbed. So the you know the the you know the source of jury lists, um, the the institutional commitments from federal and provincial governments in relation to providing support to jurors so that more diverse groups can be represented on the juries, all of that was not done. And so many of the structural uh, policy preferences of the government uh, or policy decisions of the government. Um, that I would say deserve very harsh scrutiny were left entirely unscathed by this decision from the government. And I think that's that's a big problem. And, and in, to be clear, in many ways, those problems, the BCCLA was absolutely on side with, with Aboriginal legal services, right? They also, uh, in many ways, support uh, greater structural reform in relation to, uh, in relation to diversity on juries. So uh, we were on opposite ends of the intervention, um, but in many ways, we had very similar goals of more diverse juries and more impartial tribunals. And what was the uh, the outcome of that case? Is it on reserve? Uh, so that case was uh, decided from the bench with reasons to follow. Uh, Those reasons so followed? They have not followed. Uh, okay. So the reasons are still under reserve. Uh, but the court decided from the bench that the abolition of peremptory challenges was 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 constitutional. So where they'll go and the ultimate reasons where we are not sure. Uh, the, the hope uh, from the BCCLA's standpoint is that um, while the court is upholding the decision to remove peremptory challenges, that they'll be thinking carefully about uh, alternative uh, devices within the criminal code that relate to jury diversity and how those might be used at least to partially compensate with respect to diversity. So peremptory challenges were one means used by many uh, accused to diversify their juries, uh, but there's challenges for cause, there's judicial standbys, there, there's other provisions in the code that provide or that could be strategically used for greater diversity on juries. Uh, and our, our hope is maybe there's some progressive language in the judgment that right. speaks to the, the use of these alternate measures as a means of securing greater diversity on juries. Uh, but currently it's just a waiting game. Right. And so um, just a factual question, was it was was the evidence um, pretty clear that these peremptory challenges were being used to more often than not increase diversity in the juries? Was that like uncontroverted evidence or was there a dispute about whether that was actually the case? Yeah. So, I mean, so the evidence was complicated because, uh, I mean, to actually study peremptory challenges has a lot of uh, kind of empirical hurdles, right? Because peremptory challenges aren't, I mean, there isn't anybody that's like scrutinizing how they're used typically. Uh, and the way that they're used is is without is, is because it's peremptory, it's without scrutiny specifically. Right. Yeah. Um, so whether or not it's being used in a particular fashion, right? You, you, you don't have to, but there isn't a ton of evidence about it. And so a lot of, um, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence from defense counsel in terms of how it's used. Um, what I will say is that there was a study that came out, um, I think in the Manitoba Law Journal, um, which polled or surveyed, I should say, a, a number of Crown and Defense Counsel um, about the use of peremptory challenges. And uh, both Crown and Defense overwhelmingly were of the view that that peremptory challenges had a positive impact on the fairness of the jury process. So it, it was, you know, there, there. I, I can't speak to we in the BCCLA's argument. They cited. Uh, multiple reports uh, and um, studies relating to the, you know, patterns of use relating to peremptory challenges. Um, but 
uh, there, but yeah, like I said, there's, there's, there's limitations on how you can explore it in innate to what, you know, how peremptory challenges function, uh, because they're not, uh, they're not meant to and can't be scrutinized per se. Right. Makes sense. Um, well, we've come to the end of uh, part two of our discussion. Uh, Joshua, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a very enlightening and uh, fruitful conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. I hope our listeners have enjoyed learning uh, a little bit as well about uh, how systemic racism affects our everyday lives in Canada and in our legal profession specifically. Thank you to Joshua and Natalia for this insightful series. I'd also like to thank my co-editors, Chloe Snyder and Chris Horkins, for making this podcast possible. Thank you as well to our production leads, Ian Brenneman, Natalia Rodriguez, Jean-Simon Schoenholz, Matthew Hoyes, and Laura Gurr. Thank you to Danielle Buglivo of Dentons for her sound editing help. And thank you to Robin Black and Dave Malika of the Advocates Society. We look forward to being with you next time on Friends Who Argue. That's it for our show. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and that you'll tune in next time. If you enjoyed this episode and want to stay up to date, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Friends Who Argue is brought to you by The Advocate Society, an association of advocates with over 6,000 members from all areas of practice across Canada. For more information about The Advocate Society, go to www.advocates.ca or follow us on Twitter at at advocates underscore SOC. Until next time, we are Friends Who Argue.